Welcome everyone to the Dining on a Dime podcast, where we give you tips on how to save on your monthly food budget. Now we give you the absolute best foodie news, and our professionals will give you recipes and cooking tips. So let's get the show started. Welcome to Dining on a Dime. Here is what you're going to hear today. First 15 minutes is going to give you all kinds of foodie apps that you can use, such as Too Good to Go. And we're going to explain what that is. Gives people a grab bag full of things at a pretty good discount. But we're going to get deep into that. Uh, first 15 minutes is apps. Second 15 minutes, we're going to talk about virtual kitchens and ghost kitchens. And we have our expert chef, Gene Blum, in studio. And he's going to dig deep into that. Third segment is Chef Gene Blum. He will give his uh, culinary expertise in segment three. And then our final 15 minutes are with... Chef um, Barbie Marshall, who is one of the big stars of Shell, um, Hell's Kitchen. And we're excited. So let's get started. The first foodie app we are going to talk about today is called Too Good To Go. It just entered the Philadelphia market. Uh, let's have our expert chef, uh, Gene Blum, explain to the folks exactly how it works, etc. So too good to go. Uh, what I really truly love about this app is it addresses one of the major problems facing the entire world right now, and that is food waste. If I went out and said to you that forty percent of the food in the world goes to waste, wow! You know, you'd be no, that can't be true. You have to be really wrong. So forty percent of the food in the United States and worldwide goes to waste. It's actually a little higher worldwide. Um, in, in the rest of the world, it's about 44% uh, in non-developed nations and in developed nations, about 40%. Just absolutely goes to waste every day. And what does that do? Well, that affects all kinds of stuff. It affects, obviously, the economy. It affects the carbon footprint. It affects the water supply. It affects, you know, money in businesses. It affects energy. It fills landfills, and it also produces a ton of biogas, which is, you know, certainly not good for the world and global warming. So what Too Good to Go does is they allow restaurants to package up materials that are probably going to go to waste in a day, maybe two days, and sell them at a discounted price. And you can sign on to the app. You can look at restaurants nearby you, look at what they're offering, Purchase it online. They give you a pickup time and you come and pick it up. I know a recent example, my daughter uses it. So my daughter went down to DeBruno Brothers. She pulled up the app. She went down to DeBruno Brothers, got a croissant, a dinner serving of quiche. She got uh, a baguette, some salad greens, and like a half dozen cookies for $5. It was all stuff that they were going to have to get rid of within the next day. $5. You can't get the piece of quiche at the Bruno Brothers for $5. That's exactly right. And it's instead of them throwing it away, they put a grab bag box together, and then you get it at a huge discount. We just looked last night, and they had something for $18 reduced down to 6 So you get great deals. But I just want to let our listeners know around the world that each place in the world, I believe Too Good to Go was created in Denmark, uh, every place around the country and the world has something similar. Uh, too good to go. We're just focusing on that because the Philadelphia area where this show is recorded has it. But there are similar apps. There are. Uh, you know, one of the things from a, a, a 
business point of view. Uh, a good friend of mine has a business in South Philadelphia, and he makes soups every day and fresh soups for part of his business. He gets rid of any remaining soup. You know, he makes them fresh. So at the end of the day, he puts up whatever's remaining on Too Good to Go. He sells out within an hour. How about so that? material that would normally go to waste or go into the sink or go into the landfill, whatever, he's covering his cost on. He's not making any money. He's not losing any money. He's covering his cost, which is great for him. But it's also really wonderful for the people locally that are enjoying his good soups. And it really also benefits people like college students and people on lower incomes. So it really is a great community app. It's real easy to use. I loaded it in minutes onto my phone, Uh, you know, just right away. Everything came up in my area that's offering it. There was a few great specials available. I recommend Too Good to Go. And if you're anywhere else in the country, there is a similar app to that uh, that eliminates food waste. That is correct. Okay, and let's move on to our second foodie app. It's called Food Boss. And what Food Boss does is when you download the app, it'll help you find the lowest delivery fee. Now, how many times have we complained, Amherst? Uh, that the uh, delivery fees are outrageous. Uh, I was stuck home due to the weather. I was using DoorDash, and I just you know, opted to go right to the restaurant directly because the fees are outrageous. Food Boss, you can download, and it'll find you where you can get the lowest delivery rate. What do you think, Chef? I think that's an absolute fabulous app, and it's great for businesses as well. One of the problems during COVID that a lot of businesses found is that they were being overcharged on food apps. There are actually regulations to govern that, but Food Boss really steps up and gives you that and and forces the businesses to provide you with the actual delivery fees. Um, There are organizations like the Pennsylvania Restaurant Logic Association that really monitors that. So if you feel you're being overcharged, you can certainly contact them. But Food Boss is great. And it also gives you, you know, you can go into the app a little bit and look for some other unique places that you probably didn't know existed for delivery. So you're not just locked into one. It'll give you all the apps and And, you can look at different And since we are a restaurant industry show, you want to tell everyone, call the restaurant first and give them the opportunity to deliver to you so they don't get those charges. Absolutely. I strongly suggest, you know, finding out if the restaurant itself delivers uh, or if they have somebody that they utilize for that. Or, you know what, if you can, go pick it up. Give the restaurant all your money. And right now, the other thing I really push is if you're sitting on gift certificates for restaurants, things like that, just wait about three more months before you use them. Give them some time to make some money before, you know, we start, cashing into things that they already spent that money on. And another thing is, I'll give an example, Chef. I had a delivery fee with a third-party app was going to total like 12 bucks, and I called the pizza place, and it was a dollar. You know what I mean? Right. For them to deliver it. So Absolutely. a lot of times you're getting a better deal with the restaurant. Some of our restaurant friends have created websites that you can order from, uh, you know what I mean, for free delivery. I mean, a good example of how you're being overcharged is you can, you know, get Uber app or Uber Eats, you can pay a monthly fee. I think it's $11, something like that, a monthly fee. And it waives your delivery fees the rest of the month. Yeah, but how many times are you sitting home, you know? Uh, For a college kid that is doing that 20 times a month, you know, 
So Uber Eats seriously must be overcharging you if they can, you know, get by on that $11 a month and no no fees. But a lot of times they're also charging the restaurant too, and it's hitting the restaurant hard. And we cover both food and alcohol. So here's the next app. This is for our wine lovers. <laughs> it is an app called, and we'll have our, uh, you sell wine, so we'll talk to Amherst about this. It's called Vivino. It's a wine scanner, and what you can do is you can use the app to scan the bottle of wine. It'll give you the reviews, unbiased uh, reviews, and you can get, like, a rating system. What do you think, Amaris? You can find out, you know, if your wine is, you know, liked or not liked. I mean, uh, okay, so I think that when you are going in a store and, per- and, and you're purpose is to purchase a bottle of wine. Um, it's helpful if you don't have any idea as to what you're looking for. Um, in reference to my selling wine, uh, I sell One Hope wine and it like, their wines are award winning. These are wines that even the president has on uh, Air Force One. So there's a guarantee of whatever wine you're purchasing, you're going to like. But, you know, for Vivino, I would say that this would be perfect because as you were discussing prior to the show, it also shows you, you know, what to pair the wine with. So if you're cooking, you a lot of info. yeah, it'll give you that information. So I think that that would be, a, you know, a benefit for, for anybody. And there might be people just getting into wine. You know what I mean? And wine yeah, connoisseurs. The newbies. I, I have the app loaded on my oh, phone great. or something. Thing I use the, I use it much like Amherst said. I'll use it as a reference on on occasion to see what other people think of it. The big caveat to this is the ratings are done by the general public, That's so you everyone. always must be careful mm. because if your palate is different than the norm, you're going to get deceived. How about that? Exactly, because I'm like I have a more refined palate, as does Gene. So you know, us reading a review that's by the masses might not be the best thing. That's actually a great point because if you're getting regular people who are not wine, you know, into wine, that you that you can be swayed. That's a great point. Let's go into the food truck world. So we have covered. Our foodies, we're saving the environment, and now we're going to save the food trucks. There is an app called Roaming Hunger, and it will give you a food truck near you uh, that you can, uh, you know, and a lot of times, uh, I love food trucks, a lot of times... uh, you know, you get some of the best food off food trucks. Go ahead. I was going to say, I actually um, have roaming hunger because it is a beneficial thing. It Not only does it, you know, list off the different um, food trucks, it will, so long as it's updated, it will give you the location of where the food truck is vending from. How about so, that? Yeah. So there are certain food trucks that I actually um, stalk a little bit, mm-hmm. um, particularly cupcake food trucks. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, if if comes spring, summertime, when food trucks are more prevalent um, and it's that season, I stalk them. I will find out where they are vending from so that I can specifically go to that their food truck. What's your thoughts, uh, Chef, uh, on the food trucks? Uh, I've had some great food off food trucks. I am very closely tied into the food truck business oh, in the city of Philadelphia. Um so I, I really support the food truck business. There are some amazing food trucks. There are. I put a lot of food trucks together for festivals and things like that. So, I mean, me personally, I use Roaming Hunger more as a idea of who else I could bring in and finding some new people. Uh, 
you know, in the city of Philadelphia, the other thing you could easily do too, if you're really interested in food trucks and finding out where people are on a regular basis, you can actually just reach out and contact the Philadelphia Mobile Food Truck Association. Oh, okay. Or in any city, you send them an email and say, hey, you know, I'm in Center City. Can you tell me who's there certain days? Because in any city, food trucks have different days where they can be in different locations. But Roaming Hunger is a fabulous app for finding things you want. If you're in the city for something and you want to try something different, finding them. And, you know, you can literally do a progressive dinner on food trucks. Yeah. Just go from one to the other to the other. And not and not to be the devil's advocate, but I know that there's, you know, that uh, that behind the scenes like battle between uh, Mobile Food Truck Association and also industrial food trucks. Yes. So there's the two, the big name food truck uh, coalitions that, you know, you can contact to get that information from. That's fantastic. Go ahead, G. No, I, I just, you know, I, I strongly suggest uh, trying out the food trucks in the city. I mean, so many little places. One of the great cheesesteaks and burger places in the city of Philadelphia, Spot Burger, started as a food truck. Right. So, you know, you're really going to find a lot of gems in the city. And there are several food trucks in our area but anywhere around the world that you're listening there are food trucks putting out some great food and we're going to talk about food trucks in the next segment too uh, as far as food trucks and virtual kitchens Uh, we're going to talk about that aspect let's go to break and when we come back from break we're going to talk about ghost kitchens and virtual kitchens you can now listen to all of our past dining on a dime podcast plus See over 600 restaurant reviews with photos by going to www.phillyrestaurantreviews.com. All right, we're back. Let's get into, let's dig down deep into Ghost Kitchens. Uh, Third-party delivery or delivery is uh, is helping the uh, restaurant business keep rolling now. Uh Ghost kitchens are something that I'll give you an example. I was using the DoorDash app, and there is a, a, an address that has ten different restaurants to it, and that is because it's a ghost kitchen. And what they do is you can have ten to fifteen menus being made in one kitchen. Uh, we have an expert on our panel, Chef. Let's get into ghost kitchens and also virtual kitchens. We're going to cover virtual and ghost kitchens. They're pretty much identical. Right. You know, what a ghost kitchen or a virtual kitchen is, is a restaurant without dining for all intents and purposes. Exactly. The two big difference between the, them is, so a food truck or a group of food trucks may use a ghost ch- kitchen where, you know, eight or 10 share a common space. They share common walk-ins. They share the expenses and it's a lot less money for them. And they're able to use that facility Uh, as their kitchen, as their commissary, things like that. But the real big business is in delivery apps for restaurants that don't really exist as restaurants. They are just virtual, exactly that. So in Philadelphia, the big one we have, and I think Kevin was referring to that as Fair Foods. Yes, Um, that's the one. Fair Foods has about 30 different food companies, and none of them have seats or anything like that. Each one gets about 200 square foot of actual cooking space that's fully equipped. Uh, You can kind of design it what you want. You can bring in your own equipment, however you need to be. There's different rates you can get. But it allows all 30 to share the rent and even share the delivery costs. 
So I'm going to make a jump and just guess that this is more like a commercial um, prep kitchen. It is exactly that. It is a very large prep kitchen with a lot of walk-ins, a lot of space, delivery area, everything like that, a loading dock that is set up for a number of different businesses. But the business, especially during COVID, has become so popular that a lot of the mainstream restaurants are now doing this and they're setting up ghost kitchens in their own abilities. You know, one of, there's, there's two that come to mind. Well, Steven Starr, Jose Garces, both do them. Uh, Steven Starr's is actually a kind of Korean-influenced one that he set up in one of his abandoned With restaurants. Serpico? Yeah. That, yes, that's Peter Serpico. Yes, so, and he did, you know, a, a Korean influence one. I want to say... I know Guy Fieri is, um, it, he actually runs out of other people's kitchens. Mm-hmm. So he's somebody that's utilizing these ghost kitchens. A lot, of, a lot of celebrity chefs are actually, I read that, that are actually getting into the ghost business game. Uh, there's a celebrity chef, Eric Greenspan, that is big on the West Coast. He has like 15 of them. I mean, here in Philadelphia, so Pinefish Restaurant on Washington Square has opened up a ghost kitchen called Comfort Philly, and he sells comfort food. Not everything that he sells on his regular menus, he kind of created a different one. Uh, That was one. In Northern Liberties, El Camino Real has set up two, uh, Tiki Taco and Hot Burger are the two that they've set up. So they're just, you know, go. they just took space that they had that they weren't utilizing back prep lines or whatever and they set it up there are places you go out west where it's really taken off on the west coast that people are setting up six and seven different ghost kitchen apps or ghost kitchen type of situations out of their back kitchen you know you could do something as simple as a milkshake delivery system so you know, you're going on and say, "Wow, you know what? I want to get some Mexico, but they really make great they really make great milkshakes at other place too." I'm going to combine it too. It's all coming out of the same kitchen. Yep. What a great resource that is. That's a great point, and they predict that ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens, etc., will reach the one trillion dollar mark by 2030. How about that? One trillion. Well, when you consider the fact that they provide low overhead. So you don't need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up your kitchen. You can open up at a much faster time. You don't need construction costs and everything like that. It's extremely convenient. And you also have additional revenue sources because you can open up multiple ghost kitchens out of one small space or multiple businesses. And then there's a lot of flexibility in what you do. If something's not working, you can change your concept really cheap without having to totally renovate your facility and do all that. It's just a great, easy thing. And let me just one one quick thing. Uh, I was in a foodie chat. Mm-hmm. And people were actually not ordering from places because they thought it was fraudulent when they saw that 20 different restaurants were under the same case. <laughs> That's true. That is the thought process. So the point of this segment, and Chef explained it to you, is don't be afraid. Those are legitimate places. It's just that they are ghost kitchens. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. I was going to say, this is also perfect for somebody, you know, who wants to get into the restaurant business and wants to do a startup. You know, it's, it, as you said, low cost on overhead. You know, it's a, a location that everybody shares the rent of and you get a small area that's dedicated to yourself. And because it's a commercial prep kitchen, you're compliant with all the, you know, legal background stuff that, you know, restaurateurs need to um, comply to. Absolutely. It's, so it's, 
you know, that whoever operates the ghost kitchen, the primary owner of the facility, is really the one who has to be compliant with the Board of Health, has to get all the insurances, everything, builds that into the cost of your space and your rent. And, you know, somebody else is taking care of all that. It's a really wonderful thing. And if it's not working out for you, it's an easy out. Yeah. You don't have a building. You don't have a long-term lease. You don't have a lot of things. You can get out really quick. And Chef Greenspan pointed out in the interview he gave is people think it's so easy to succeed. You got to you gotta understand there's only, what, five restaurants if it's a physical restaurant. In the virtual world, when you create a ghost kitchen, you're competing with a lot more <clears throat> restaurants. Well, that is one of the, the biggest that's one of the draw or the downfalls of this whole app or the ghost kitchen situation is that because you don't have a physical property and you know, you're competing with so many things on the web, you're, you're just, it's really tough to make your mark, you know, on the internet and, and become very successful because you don't have that physical brand. You don't have that name that people drive by every day. It, it's just not there. That's the exact point chef said. He said, look, if I had a physical location, I'm only competing with, what, three or whatever in the neighborhood. But now that I'm virtual, I'm competing with hundreds. And that's the point he was making is exactly what you just said. The other aspect of it is keep in mind that you're dealing with a delivery service. So your customer experience is impacted by your delivery it, service That's as exactly well. what he said. So it's a whole different world there. Um, you, you know, you can't control every aspect. If I'm a restaurateur and I have a physical restaurant, I can control every aspect of what happens by being there and overseeing it. And let me let me touch on this point. Uh, I also read that what they try to do is they try to offer several different cuisines, but with the same basic ingredients. You know what I mean? So what they do is they strategize and they get a basic set of ingredients, but they try to make 10 different kitchens out of that uh, ingredient. Absolutely. I mean, that just makes sense, you know, when you can, you know, limit the amount of product coming in or the the variety of product coming in. You have less spoilage. Everybody's working together. And as I said, they also work together on keeping their delivery fees down. So some of those inherent costs are split between a number of different members, not just one or two. And what do you think about this, Chef? They said that a lot of restaurants that sell burgers – might open, you know, might start a, a ghost kitchen to sell tacos with the leftover burger meat. That makes sense, doesn't it? Sure. Anytime you could use up food waste and turn it into a viable product and get some money in the door for it, it's an absolutely wonderful thing to do. And another thing I read, and we'll uh, let the chef talk about this too, is they said that food trucks would be good because they can go into a high, you know, a high density area and start a ghost kitchen from that area because people in that area will see you know what i mean that they're near well one of the the ability to move around sure and one of the problems that you know food trucks run into is commissary operations storage space things like that on the east coast we have not caught on to what happens in california in california there are giant food truck commissaries that you know represent 50, 100 food trucks, and they do the same thing. They do a ghost kitchen situation where everybody gets, you know, 200 square feet, 100 square feet, whatever it is to produce for all those trucks. And it really works out. It makes the food trucks a lot more profitable on the West Coast. We haven't picked up that idea on the East Coast yet. 
And they also are focusing on two popular delivery foods. So, like, they'll open a a ghost kitchen and say, hey, look, this ghost kitchen is going to focus on pizza and burgers because we know most people ordering are going to order those foods. Sure. You know, you're going to go after the popular foods, but it also allows – there's a lot of them in the city of Philadelphia – that are branding out and trying very unique products and really experimenting. I mean, Steven Starr is a very popular brand, very popular name, so he didn't have a lot to risk. But the fact that he did a Korean-influenced, you know, go or a delivery service, it was really something different, and it's taken off. It is. It's skyrocketing. But I, the point I wanted to make during this segment, and I think the chef clearly uh, may, you know, explained it, is there are people that don't know about ghost kitchens that are thinking fraud when they see 20 different restaurants at the same address. So those are ghost kitchens. Absolutely. Recently doing a cheesesteak tour, um, we were looking for a cheesesteak at the end of the night, and one of the locations that was on the tour pulled it up, was going to go there. It ended up being a ghost kitchen. Absolutely. So we ended up not getting a cheesesteak from there because you just couldn't go in and buy it. Exactly. And let's talk about, we got five minutes. We have five minutes. Uh, Let's talk about packaging. I mean, they stress everything I read is, hey, if you're going to do a ghost kitchen, let's make sure that packaging is good. Well, that's such a big hot button today is environmentally sound packaging. I will not use a place a second time if I get my food in styrofoam. It, one, it really impacts the flavor. Two, it's just terrible for the you know, world itself. It's just absolutely you know, a horrendous product environmentally. So ghost kitchens are really working on that, you know, giving their, the, their people that utilize the space guidelines. This is what you're going to use. We're going to work with you on storage of it. We're going to set up a, a purchasing program if need be, but you're going to use good packaging, whether it's recycled, whether it's biodegradable, whatever the circumstance. You know, and it really is the way, and I just hope everybody gets on board with that soon. And just a couple of stats, just so our, you know, our, our owners or whoever wants to look into a ghost kitchen, 34% of people that order uh, by third party, spend $50 or more. 31% of consumers use a third-party app at least once a week. So those are strong numbers. They're really big numbers, and they're numbers that restaurants are paying attention to. Uh, the restaurant business used to be, or the food business used to be, where you had a good idea, you had quality product, you opened up and you went. Today, there's a ton of market research. You're consulting your accountant. You're consulting your marketing person. You're consulting, you know, different experts to look at your market share. And those numbers stand out big. And ghost kitchens would be a nice pivot because some of the stats are astonishing. Uh, 75% of casual dining dropped uh, at the start of the pandemic. Uh, Fine dining dropped 90%, you know, with the pandemic. And fast food was even down 50%. So these are some numbers you got to think of. If you have a fine dining restaurant, probably a nice pivot for a ghost kitchen. Sure. It, it allowed you to get some income in. They probably kept you afloat during all this situation. Exactly. You know, in the state of Pennsylvania, there is 
numbers that show that we're probably going to lose one in five restaurants wow. from the time that the pandemic started to now. And that's kind of a low estimate to a lot of people. But, you know, think about one in five restaurants closing. If you walk down a busy street in the city of Philadelphia or whatever your neighborhood is and just walk past five and realize one's going to be gone. Right. And after those doom and gloom stats, uh, delivery orders increased uh, since the pandemic started by 65%. So those are just a couple stats to, you know, to just kind of put uh, put it into perspective. Uh, we're going to go to break. And then when we come back, uh, we'll be right back. You can find the Dining on a Dime podcast on social media. On Facebook, Dining on a Dime, the number one. On Twitter, at Dining on a Dime, the number one. And on Instagram, KJW1972. Please subscribe to our show. We are available on all podcast platforms, including iHeartRadio and Spotify. Okay, we are back. And one of the biggest things we uh, that people love about our show is we actually have real experts. And we have expert uh, chef uh, Gene Blum, and he is going to give us a segment. Go ahead, chef. So today we're actually going to deviate from food and go over to beverage. And I say that in, in the fact that right now uh, one of our co-hosts, Amaris, and I are enjoying wonderful cocktails. And the cocktail is actually called Death in the Afternoon. It is a cocktail that was created by Ernest Hemingway, named after one of his books. Uh, and this particular cocktail is a little bit of champagne and abstinence. And we're going to talk a little bit about abstinence. So absent to me, is a absolutely fabulous spirit. And that's an important thing to understand. Absinthe is not for the first-time user. Okay, it is a spirit. It is not a liqueur. So, the percentage of alcohol on Abstin is anywhere from fifty-five to seventy percent, which is one hundred and ten proof to one hundred and forty proof. So, it's a really, you know, high alcohol content. If you're not familiar with proof and, and percentage of alcohol, if something is eighty proof, it is forty percent alcohol. Proof is twice what the alcohol content is. So Abstin is a great drink. We actually here are drinking one that's made out of Philadelphia. It's an award-winning product. It's called Vukuri. It's made by a company here in Philadelphia called Philadelphia Distilling. Uh, Vukuri is actually named after the French Quarter is exactly what it is. It's what they call the French Quarter in New Orleans if you live there. So based on that. So Abstin. Abstin was popular Back in the late 1800s, it was made popular by guys like Vincent Van Gogh, who cut off his ear while he was drunk with Abstin, allegedly, <laughs> uh, sent it to his girlfriend to, uh, you know, profess his undying love. Uh, I don't know if that would have worked for me, but uh, one of the things that Abstin is, is tied to is people said that you get hallucinations from it. So there is a product in it, wor uh, Wormwood, which has a substance in a cultulene, which is a hallucinogenic. I'm going to tell you that run-of-the-mill, everyday abstin, you would need to drink a bottle of it to hallucinate, and you would be dead from alcohol poisoning before <laughs> that occurred. So that's not really the issue. Though, that came about because while they were doing abstin and drinking abstin on a regular basis, 
they were also doing other substances. And then when the reputation started, there were companies that started adding hallucinogenics into the Abstin in addition to the Wormwood. So Abstin was banned in the United States in 1912 because of this whole concept of hallucinations and things like that, and they banned it. It was 95 years later before it became a popular or before it became legal in America again. 2007, mm. after Prohibition ended, Abstin was still illegal. It's very strong in black licorice. It has... This particular one we're drinking today has two types of anise, a green anise and a star anise. It has a lot of spearmint and herbs in it. When you make abstin, you do an abstin cocktail. The traditional way is the French method, which you pour ice water or very cold water into the abstin, and it creates this wonderful green kind of foggy cocktail, and they call that the green fairies is what it's called. I thought that they did that. Oh, they actually poured water over a sugar cube. Well, that that is one method. So a lot of people will just do it by adding a little simple syrup. So the tr traditional French preparation is to use this beautiful decorative fountain with a beautiful decorative silver spoon that has all kinds of artistic perforations in it. You then put a sugar cube on that. And it's actually, in France, they'll use a very specific sugar cube. And then they slowly drip the ice water over. And there's a very specific glass that they use that has a little bubble on the bottom to where you fill the abstin and then a bubble further up to where you fill it with the ice water and the sugar cube. There was a period of time where people said use a flaming sugar cube. That was done as a marketing ploy and it was done to cover up really poorly made abstin. So the flaming sugar cube, get rid of that idea altogether. It's not really true. But I do like the sugar cube. And also I'm a bit bougie. So all of that, you know, decorative spoon, decorative glass, you know, all those little rolls. I'm like, oh, I kind of want to do that. Well, then you need to come over and we'll throw a little abstin party because <laughs> I have a fountain and I have some spoons and we can do all that. I you know, have a box of sugar cubes in the refrigerator. I like it. I do it at weddings and events as part of the late night dessert, I'll do an Aston bar and I usually serve it, you know, with some different types of bread puddings and things like that. It's also a great appetizer cocktail with the licorice. I mean, it's very black licorice flavor, anise flavor, but it really works with savory bread puddings as well. So it's a really fabulous thing. It's actually a white grape based spirit. And then you add in, the wormwood and the anise and the fennel and things like that. Um, there are really no hallucinogenic properties in absinthe that you buy today. But Unless if you drink too much of it. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you know, again, it's not for the faint of heart. And if you don't like black licorice, just move on and don't go there because, you know, if you can't drink it. It's funny that you say that because I am definitely not a fan of licorice at all. And for some reason, I do like this drink and I do like absinthe. Um, so it's it's a, it's funny that, that you say that because even though I have a huge dislike of fennel and anise and, and whatnot, I really like this drink. Well, there's a lot of others. There's a lot of herbs in it. Um, I can taste the mint. And, yeah, yeah, the mint. There's a lot of herbs that go into it. And that's what gives it this green color is the chlorophyll 
from the herbs because they're not just added as a flavor. They literally sit in there and macerate for a long period of time. And it's, it's if you, I know that you guys listening at home can't see this, but there is actual like little um, green dots that are floating in there. And that's probably from that maceration. It happens to do with this particular Vucarie made in Philadelphia. They don't overly filter their product. So it's really nice in that aspect. Uh, it, it is just a fabulously made product. It's for an American product. I mean, so Vukuri was the first abstinent product that was distilled, bottled, and distributed in the East Coast of America. And it opened up, uh, their first bottle came out January, or I'm sorry, December 31st, 2008. So they opened up on New Year's Eve. You can get the first bottles. Now, is there, can you spell that for our listeners? Vukuri? Sure. It's V I E O. X C A R R E. So it's a, and what I love about Vukri too, they're located in Philadelphia. All, f- well, actually, they make um, Penrye vodka, Penrye 1681 vodka. They also make a great gin, Blue Coat gin. I know Amherst loves Blue Coat gin. But all five of their distillers, all five, are from this area. So you got Hatfield, Media, Burlington, uh, Ben Salem. Well, uh, Actually, I'm sorry, the one female distiller they have is from Alexandria, Virginia. But, you know, really a great, just look, they started, you know, being hobbyists and they make this phenomenal product. Um, They're located, you can tour their facility, they're on East Allen Street in Philadelphia. Um, But the name came from that French Quarter and where it was really became popular in America uh, in 1869, our first. Apton Bar opened up in New Orleans. It was right on Bourbon Street. It is still there, and they still specialize in Apton cocktails. What a fabulous thing to go see. I have to tell you, I was there way too long when I was there. So, (laughs) um, But it was a fabulous evening to go and to live through that. And if you do like all those wonderful traditions, Apton is a great thing to break out at your next party. But again, keep in mind, it is high alcohol content, okay? You only need one or two for your evening. I don't suggest as, you know, it was very popular back in the day with Vincent Van Gogh and, you know, others, they would sit around and drink it all day. Probably not a suggested idea. <laughs> and eat it with food. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, there are two types that you can buy. There is the Abstin Blanc, which is a white Abstin, or the traditional Verte, which is the green. Um, that's what you'll find most commonly. The the Blancs are a little harder to find, and I don't really like them. They're a little just, they don't have all the same herbal flavor to me. Mm. They're too filtered. Um, it just really loses something out of it. you know. And then there are some great cocktails, like the one we're doing tonight is a, you know, one quarter abstin, three quarters champagne, you know, and how could you go wrong with something created by Ernest Hemingway? I mean, he was a big fan of it. This was one of his favorite cocktails. He learned about this while he was in France, came back, was throwing a party, decided to blend it with champagne, and off we go. That's interesting. And let me ask you a question because in case our listeners are wondering, how do you spell absinthe? A-B-S-I-N-T-H-E. And I suggest they look it up because it's a powerful 
uh, alcohol. Correct? Absolutely. And it's just something to have. It's not going to go bad. Something to have in your cabinet for that special time. You want to try something different. You want to have – I have actually thrown parties based around it. So it's it's just a lot of fun um, where I, you know, theme the menu based on it and just had a tremendous amount of fun with it. Well, when when you say that you have absinthe and you're going to be throwing a dinner party, it's almost like that is the highlight of the evening. So I could see you throwing a party around that and maybe, you know, dedicating your menu to play off of the different, you know, flavors of the herbs and whatnot that are within it. Some years back, we were doing the opening of a really grand old uh, venue called uh, Elkins Estate, and we were opening, doing it, and, and I think there were seven or eight caterers were allowed to come in and set up stations and do this big event and, you know, to open it up, and everybody was, you know, going to focus on whatever, and I did a very simple savory bread pudding, three different types, and an abstin bar, and you paired them together. It was the hit of the night. Everybody wanted to be there, so it really worked out for our favor in doing that because it just got away from the, you know, normal everyday catering food and gave them something different. You only suggest, chef, one to two glasses. Absolutely, okay. unless you have the whole day to kill and you want to start early in the morning. It is so the vukri that we have here, I believe, is. 110 proof. Wow. Yeah, you can taste it. Holy moly. 110 proof. Oh, boy. Well, Chef, another great segment. Uh, If you have any uh, questions for the Chef about absinthe, uh, just email uh, email them, ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. And let's go to break. We're coming back. You can find Dining on a Dime every Friday at 1 p.m. on WMLD radio app and on air at 103.7 fm in new york the voice of the hudson valley hi um so we are back from break and we have the amazing talented and wonderful chef barbie marshall who was one of the participants and a star of multiple hell's kitchen um tv shows so chef chef barbie marshall um want to want to just talk a little bit about yourself and you know maybe a little bit about some ghost kitchens that you might have been involved with hi everyone how are you doing today hello Hello, chef that was in unison that was was quite cute (laughs) so i was on season 10 of um hell's kitchen way back in the 2010 decade which seems like wasn't that long ago but it was and then i got invited back to season 17 on the all-star season and um I just had a really good time. I mean, I, I was one of the rare people I went on a dare from my kids. Like people get dared to go on Hell's Kitchen, but it usually isn't their kids that do it. Um, and that's how it turned out for me. So fun times. <laughs> now, um, I I don't I actually think that he um Gordon Ramsay has some ghost kitchens going on. Doesn't he have a ghost kitchen going on? Um, it's an entire. It's entirely possible because COVID has completely changed the dynamics of 
the restaurant industry as we know it for now. Um, and it, and I and I honestly think that it's going to still continue to change just because there there are some some taste complications that one one can experience as a symptom, but also as a complication. But uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, there have definitely been restaurant shortages and, and no less struggles. So a lot of people have taken to, since takeout has been quite productive, they have altered their complete business plan to, to, to take their shuttered dining rooms and apply a ghost kitchen because maybe the menu that they had in their dining room just doesn't isn't applicable to takeout food or maybe it just it, it's not what people want to have delivered for Monday night dinner. And so chefs have gotten and restaurateurs have gotten very creative in how to maintain their businesses through this time because it's not easy. It's not been easy at all. So we're seeing a lot of, especially in the Philly area, a lot of chefs um, relying on ghost ghost kitchens. And it's really weird because ghost kitchens kind of started getting popular and making a, a sort of debut right before COVID struck, where I know like one of the best burgers that I got in the city late night, like I would pay $30 for this burger and this was pre-COVID. Like I might've gotten some sides and stuff too, but it was like the best carryout burger that I, that I'd ever had like to go. And it was from a place called like Night Owl Kitchen, which didn't have an address. It didn't have a restaurant affiliation. It was just like, Hey, you can get this burger. And, and it's going to cost you, but it's going to be really delicious. And so the adaptation of what you're seeing with ghost kitchens, I think, is just the industry trying to survive and and an attack essentially on it. Because I don't know if really any other industry has been attacked like the restaurant industry. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I know that you, I know you personally and uh, I've cooked alongside you. I know that you're extremely talented and you have cooked all over the place and you've experienced, you know, international foods because you've traveled. Um, what with all of what's going on have has been your favorite um, like genre of foods to cook Oh, well, usually, you know me, when I, when somebody asks me this question, I say that the kind that people pay me for, <laughs> because that's true. It, it's what I do, you know, like that's always my go-to answer. I just love to cook. But lately, I, a lot of people have just really, and myself included, I've fallen back on like the comfort foods. Like I had pork and sauerkraut for dinner last night just because it's warming up and it's a cold weather dish and I wanted to get it in before it got too cold. And so, you know, I've spatchcocked some chickens and that might be like the next go-to thing except going from the oven to the grill. Um, I think that right now with the lacking the capacity to travel eating and 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 visiting places and 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 finding those memories through food 
is really an important thing. And a lot of, a lot more people now are like taking classes and being forced to cook. I mean, I don't think there's a person that hasn't, maybe you Amherst, that, that, like, is anybody else baking sourdough bread? Because I even got sucked into the sour, <laughs> sourdough bread. I, it's been a year and it, it's just been recently. I did sourdoughs like 10 years ago and I watched when everybody was like at first stuck at home and they were like, well, let's break bread. And I put it off as long as I could. And like a few weeks ago, I was like, okay, it's time for bread. Like it's calming and soothing and it takes time. And we have nothing but that, you know, sitting at home. And as the world opens up, I know I am sick of being in the house, but I also don't want to be sick of going out of the sick by going out of the house. So, you know, be mindful. I saw an article where, you know, they took they, they, they have decided that they no longer need masks in Texas. And I, I saw a post that said that that's like peeing in one part of the pool. <laughs> um, so, you know, just be mindful. I've also seen where, you know, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to social distance. It's, if you're with other people who have been vaccinated completely. So let's just take our time. Let's take our time and get back into it. And in the meantime, you know, pick something from somewhere else. I backpacked through Southeast Asia two years ago. I can't wait to go back, honestly. I miss that food so much. Um, so, you know, make maybe make a pad thai for dinner or you have time. Make some pho. Oh, pho. Uh, Barbie, Barbie and I have gone to numerous pho locations, and that is definitely one of our favorite things. Even if in the warm weather, we, I think we've we've hit it up. Where's, where's the best? Pho is supposed to be eaten during warm during warm weather, weather, and it's also usually a breakfast dish. So, you know, when I went to Vietnam, the pho there was amazing. In Philly, one of my favorite places is um, Cafe Quan Lan. And that's at 11th and Washington in the shopping center. It is across from, I think it's Pho 95, which is probably the first, well, no, it's like the second Pho I probably ate as a child was Pho, pho 95. And that, that's been there forever. But I really do like the Pho at Pho Wanlin. Um, I'm a big fan of Vietnam myself. I just have been going there forever for Vietnamese food in Chinatown and and you know their pho is absolutely fabulous as well. Mm-hmm. And pho um, is pop. I'm sorry, pho. chef. But, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but pho is a very popular, like the chef said, breakfast in Vietnam. Very popular. So I had pho in North Vietnam in Hanoi, and then I had it again in um, South Vietnam in in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City, and. It is just such an amazing thing. Like when you go and you travel, like you could get, if breakfast is included, you get a choice, Eastern breakfast or Western breakfast. And Western breakfast is usually eggs, pancakes, bacon. But then, you know, Eastern breakfast is always going to be noodles and broth. And it's just, and it was that way through Cambodia, through Thailand, through Vietnam, um, I also just had this discussion with a Vietnamese friend of mine I was talking to last night where uh, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to I'm going to give up my guilty pleasure. My guilty pleasure when I'm traveling around the world is McDonald's. And I know I know people will be literally appalled. But if you have not had congee in Shanghai at McDonald's for breakfast, don't knock it until you try it. Because 
every McDonald's in every country has to follow the country's rules and their menus are different. So if you go to a McDonald's in Shanghai, it's going to be different from a McDonald's in Ho Chi Minh City. It's going to be different from a McDonald's in Pattaya, Thailand. So it's going to be different from the McDonald's in Curacao. I went to Curacao to do a food show one time and we finished up really late. And our handler was like, okay, you guys are hungry. What do you want to eat? And there's a car full of chefs and we were all like McDonald's and we're in the McDonald's drive-thru. And he's like, I don't understand how I have a car full of international chefs and we're at McDonald's. And I was like, it's different here. In, in Poland, they did the sausage sandwich was the big thing in Poland and McDonald's. So, yeah, I mean, it is true. You get things everywhere. You know, you get every different country. is a little bit different flavor of McDonald's and Burger King kind of follows suit with that as well. But you caught KFC, me off guard there. I had KFC. I had KFC in Thailand. It wasn't my choice. I was I was driven by a private car from um Pattaya to an island to take the ferry. And when they stopped us for lunch, they were like, this is the only place on the way. And it was KFC. And I was like, I at least fond of, of, of fried chicken places. I, I'm going to, I'm just going to say, I don't like soggy. Anything that is deep fried should be crispy. And the, that original recipe. No, it's a no for me. Like if I'm going to waste my caloric mm-hmm. intake on something deep fried, it better be crispy. I don't want anything to be soggy. Well, the Asians agree. So KFC in Asia is not soggy. So I had a good experience in KFC out of the country because they believe that fried chicken should be crispy. Now, I know that um, from eating with you, you a local restaurant or eatery, I should say, um, of fried chicken that you do approve of is Red Crest in um, off of East, East Passiunk. So, yes, I yeah. totally agree. Because I do. I love and it. And those biscuits. <laughs> OMG. They have some of the best biscuits like they do a really 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 good job i do love red crest fried chicken see and that's something that i know that they're on like um uber eats and 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 doordash and things like that fortunately for them they essentially had a concept that was almost ghost kitchen worthy before so it was something that you know you you would want on a monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday saturday night so you know, some businesses, the, since they were primarily takeout anyway, they've done fine. But others, they're going to have to rely on doing something different until we can figure out how to get things back to the way they were or to our new normal. Well, Chef, I'm going to bring the soapboxes and we're going to go on a national tour <laughs> preaching that it needs to be crispy. I'm with you 100% on that one. You know, that if you're going to have chicken, it needs to be crispy. It needs to be done correctly. And it has to have some spice in that crispy because I don't like it when they just fry like some plain batter. I I like it when they add in spices. There's there's been chicken fried chicken that I've had where they didn't spice up that that batter that they dip it in before they fry it. And I'm sorry, but no, you must see that. that. That's when I like to use my common phrase of. I'm going to call the police, <laughs> the food police. It's time to call the police because you, you do need to season your food. Don't be sitting at home bored and, 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 and sad because this you can eating bland food. No, no. Give your spice, give your life some spice. Exactly. Um, so now 
Barbie, I love talking to you and it's always a wonderful experience. Um, but what would, what would I, I, you know, one of the things that I I keep trying to get you to, to tell me about is your Mac and cheese. Mm. Okay. (laughs) She's like, no, (laughs) what exactly is it that you were trying to get me to tell? I mean, cause you keep, you keep it secret. I would, I, I know. And I love your Mac and cheese. Like it is, for for anybody that's out there, like when Barbie opens up her own place eventually, you know, ho- let's all cross our fingers that her mac and cheese are going to be on that restaurant menu because you have no idea how delicious it is. It's creamy and and gooey, like and the you know the pasta is cooked just right. I love her mac and cheese. Um, I I'm just curious, you know, because I'm obsessed with that. What what's something that you cook on your own at home, other than pork chops? That um that is your <laughs> <laughs> that's your favorite dish. It is macaroni and cheese. To be honest with you, macaroni and cheese is like one of the staple Black American dishes. Like every everyone's mom at some point makes macaroni and cheese and it's on the table for every just about every it's it's definitely there for every cold weather holiday and sometimes it is there for the warm weather holidays also um but when i was a kid and i was thinking what am i going to do one day i knew that i was going to be a chef when i made macaroni and cheese on a holiday and my sister thought that it was our mom's <laughs> and then she said it was the best macaroni and cheese that mom had ever made oh so i took the i took the i took the mac and cheese crown when i was a kid nice and i just made it better so I don't tell anybody what kind of cheese I use. I like I have given out macaroni and cheese recipes and I'll give them a base for the sauce. But you don't get to know what kind of cheese. You don't get to know what kind of noodles <laughs> you you get to make that recipe your own. Whatever kind of cheese you like, you put it in there. But if you want mine, I'll make it for you. <laughs> I so appreciate that. Many years ago, I worked and studied under Delilah Winder in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And I know her. She shared with me and she shared with general public her mac and cheese recipe except what she shared with the general public was really not her complete mac and cheese <laughs> recipe she did Absolutely share with me not. she did share with me after many years of friendship and a lot of cocktails <laughs> and i actually did a little soul food competition the other day with a member of my team and i took her down in my chicken which was delilah influenced as well as my mac and cheese which has you know eight different cheeses in it and the base sauce which i'll talk about but the cheeses and the ratios of no you're not gonna have <laughs> right right you'll talk about the base of the sauce right you we can always talk about the base of the sauce but but the flavor nope. th- like yep. there are two things that make mac and cheese mac and cheese. We're not going to talk about those noodles. We're not going to talk about the, we're not going to talk about what cheese, because like the only person living and breathing that knows most of the cheeses that I use are, is one of my sisters, only one of my sisters. And she twisted my arm. I'm 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 like, do I have to come visit you and bring you like not one but like maybe two bottles <laughs> to uh, to drink and, and and then I'll sneak it out. Um What kind of bottles though? Of course whiskey. <laughs> I know you're a whiskey girl. 
<laughs> okay, if we drink two bottles of whiskey, there's a chance that you might. Get that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now- <laughs> a lot of people give up lots of things for less whiskey than two bottles. Trust me. I'll supply the whiskey if I can come. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, speaking of giving up, why don't you give up some of your handles so that we, our listeners, can find you on social media? Okay, I'm um, I'm Barbie Marshall everywhere. B a r b i e m a r s h a l l. So if you're looking for me on Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, you can find me just under my name. I try to make it as easy possible as possible. That's great. Now, thank you, Barbie, for calling in and uh, joining us on Zoom. Uh, our, our listeners, of course, will highly enjoy your interview. Um, you're always the most vivacious person that I know. And I will talk to you later. Thank you for having me. Thank Thank you, Chef. Chef. All right. That was a great interview. And uh, she was season 10 of uh, Hell's Kitchen. And uh, Pluto app on your Fire TV has Hell's Kitchen 24 hours a day. So let's wrap it up. Uh, Amorous Pollock, give your tags. You can find me across all um, most social media with my handle A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S or using my full name, Amorous Pollock. You can find me, Gene Blum, at ibfoodie2 or you can email me directly at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. And I could not be happier with that show. That show. This show was a fabulous show. I want to thank the chef. Uh, for being on the show. I want to thank you guys because you guys had incredible input. Simplest thing to find out about our show, Philly Restaurant Reviews with an S dot com. Bios of our team, uh, 115 of our past episodes, Philly Restaurant Reviews with an S dot com. We'll be back next Tuesday. You can now listen to all of our past Dining on a Dime podcast. Plus, See over 600 restaurant reviews with photos by going to www.phillyrestaurantreviews.com.